So if you jumped in late today, we're in week two of a series called No Acting Required. That's why we have the mini uh, Oscars up here. If you didn't get one last week, I want to invite you to grab an Oscar uh, today, and we'll explain that at the end. Today's sermon, honestly, is going to be really thorough. But my friend Jonathan uh, Mosley, who's pastor of Kings Hill Church in Mission Hill, he says this. He says, sermonettes create Christianettes. And uh, Ed, you like that, don't you? <laughs> and so I want to make sure that I give you the full sort of everything I believe that God wants to say to us about this uh, topic. So today's critical. And, and if there's a title for today, I, I love watching a few of you take notes on Sundays. If there's a title for today, it would be Into the Spotlight. Stepping into the spotlight, okay? How many of you hear of a spotlight and you like start to shiver or you kind of break out into hives? A few of you, I know, yep, there you go. You don't even like to raise your hand, the nervous people, right? Um, totally. Now, when I was in the eighth grade, true story, I had to be in a one-act play for my English class. We all had to do it. We didn't sign up to be in theater or drama. We were required to pass the class to be in a one-act play. And, and we weren't even given a choice. There were like four little one-act plays. And I think we were assigned them. I don't even think we were allowed to choose which one we were going to be in. But the script of my play, I was eight, it was in eighth grade, I was 14. I was awkward. I was uncoordinated. I was in the midst of puberty. And I was de- beginning to think that girls were cool. And I've got to be in a one-act play. And, um, and, and in my play, uh, I mean, we're, in the, we're in the middle school cafetorium. You remember those? The Harvard Kent's one of those where the cafeteria and the auditorium are the one and the same. And there was the stage. And, uh, and for my play, I had to stand on the lip of the stage, not just on the edge of the stage. Like literally the stage had one of those sort of wooden lips on it. And I had to stand on the lip of the play and do uh, and, and walk through this one-act play. And, and the premise was there was a guy on the, on, the, on the ledge of a skyscraper, and he was thinking about taking his life. And my role in the play was to walk out and try to initially convince him not to do that. And it's like a little comedy, and it's kind of silly. And um, long story short, eventually what happens is a third person walks out onto the ledge, and we are uh, outside this imagined window, so many uh, stories up. And man, I'm awkward. Like, I was sweating. I'm awkward now. Like, I was really awkward at 14. Like, take my awkwardness now, multiply it by my awkwardness now, and you get me at 14, right? And in the play, like, we're standing on the ledge, and there's a little tiny wall behind us. But at one point, I even had to climb over the guy, like, onto the other side of the ledge. And it was a lot. Uh, The script was... um, like the whole thing was a lot. I just remember wearing right guard and a perspirant in the eighth grade, and that was like long gone by the time we did it. And, you know, I could have fallen. In theory, I guess I could have fallen off and the, the play would have gone on, but it kind of takes something away from the play when the whole idea is you're like multiple stories up and you fall off the ledge and then you get back onto it. Like the play loses something. And so I was really thankful. Like I was melting under the spotlight that night on the stage, but I didn't fall. I almost, I almost fell. And my partner actually caught me and kept me from going down. That would have been really anticlimactic. I finished the play. I'm sure I was terrible with the acting. I'm really terrible as an actor. Really, really, really horrible. Uh, I I know I had to have been sweaty. Have you ever sweated so bad that this sweat ring almost touches this sweat ring? Like, they almost meet in the middle. I think that's where... I was, the good guy didn't jump, I didn't fall, and everything went okay. And um, so that was my first real encounter with spotlights. The second, as I think about spotlights, I think about a second story. And this one would have been 22 years later. Nat and I were buying a house in Greenville, South Carolina. The house was about 100 years old, give or take. And we were really nervous about buying a house that was 100 years old. I'd never done that. I didn't grow up in a house that old. Uh, in Charlestown, 100 years old is like, is like new construction. But for us, that felt like we were buying a historic artifact, honestly. So we had an inspection, and we paid for a really good inspector to come out. And he's walking all around the house. And if you've ever purchased a home, you know, they're looking at everything. And if you're there, you're like wondering what they're looking at. And they're writing notes, and you're wanting to know what they're writing about and all that. And he makes his notes. He does his thing. At the end, he, he says, all right, now I want to walk through with you. So we begin to walk through and we walk down to the basement, to the garage. 
And uh, in the south, you'll get these homes that are, they have what's called an exposed earth basement where literally there's just a huge rock of thick southern clay that the house is kind of built on, right? And so he gets, uh, we're in the basement, and he gets out the strongest little flashlight you've ever seen. It wasn't little, it was huge. And he shines it over into the exposed earth basement under the guts of the house. And he goes, you see that right over there? And, uh, and I couldn't miss it uh, because of the light, just the enormity of this light. He says, that's termite damage. They don't have termites here in New England, right? We don't, that's not a thing. Are they a thing? Most homes don't have termites here right now. Or do they? Do they have termites? Are there termites here? I didn't even know they could make it in like the concrete jungle that is Charlestown. Honestly, I really did not know that that was a thing here. So in the south, they were really bad. And this house was really old. And he shows me this termite damage. And so like immediately I'm having flashing red lights going off of my head. Abort, do not buy this house. And then I'm ready to eject from the purchase. And he is shining that light on that spot in our house. And he says, look, that's termite damage. That damage right there is old and it's okay. He says, this damage right here, and you could see there was different wood. He says, that was not good. And so the previous owner came in and replaced it. And that's why you see two different colors of wood there under the home. He said, you can confidently buy this house. And so he signed off on it. We literally breathed a sigh of relief, purchased the house, lived there a few years before God called us to, to live here. When we, are, when we talk about not acting in our faith and kind of stepping into the spotlight, a bunch of us probably think about stepping into the light in one of two ways, okay? One way that we think about it is like that piercing, pressure-causing light from that eighth grade play. Like everything's exposed God sees me for what I am. He sees my sweat. He sees my awkwardness. He sees my nervousness. And he sees that I'm about to fall. And we can think of stepping into the light like that. But the other way that we may be thinking about it is kind of like that flashlight that's seeing everything under the guts of our house, but aimed at saving us from the catastrophe of purchasing and living in a fatally damaged house. Two ways to think about spotlights. Which of those feels more true when you think about God or even other people seeing your sins? Which one feels more true about someone seeing your failures or your fears or your shortcomings or your sins? Now today we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at part of 1 John. Now, there's a guy named John. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He actually refers to himself as the beloved disciple. He is said to have written five books in the New Testament in the sort of biography of Jesus and the story of what happened over the next 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's attributed with the book of the Gospel of John that a lot of us have kind of, we've heard of, the Gospel of John. But he's also said to have written 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John at the very back. And then he's said to have written the book of Revelation. He's the one disciple who lived to old age, by the way. Uh, one of the disciples, Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. And then 10 of the disciples died prematurely. They were martyred. They were martyred in uh, Africa and Europe and in Asia and in the Middle East. They, they literally went spreading the gospel. And all 10 of them, with the exception of Judas and John, met an early death because they followed Christ. And, uh, and John lives... To old age, and he's persecuted, he's exiled, and he had a tough time as the Roman Empire turned against Christians. And here he is, 1 John is written, it's, it's late. If you were looking at the Bible when it was written on a timeline, 1 John would be one of the last books to be written. He's an old man, and he's writing a letter, most likely, to a network of churches around the city of Ephesus, a really influential city in the Roman Empire. And um, it's in modern-day Turkey. If you're a geography nerd, you need to see where things are. So the church began to go out from Jerusalem, and then it spread up to Turkey and then over toward Italy, as well as going down into northern Africa historically. And so in Ephesus, there was a really healthy church during the Roman 
empire. It was also a city where the gospel was powerfully received. If you read the book of Acts, the first time you hear of Ephesus, there's um, some people who are dabbling in witchcraft, and one of them comes to faith, and there's basically this crazy confrontation between some lukewarm followers of Christ and some very evil demons, and the demons like embarrass the snot out of the Christ followers, the half-hearted Christ followers, and all the Christians perk up, and it scares them to death. And they literally have a big bonfire that night where they take all their witchcraft books, they take all of their sort of dabbling in the darkness stuff, and they have a big bonfire and they burn every bit of it. And the church is like white hot on fire for Christ for years, really. But eventually they lose their love for Christ. Their love for Christ was once really um, white hot. Within just a few decades, Jesus is like an afterthought for them. They're coming to church like... Their, their bodies are here, but their hearts are like way out there. And, and um, sometime between that white hot faith and, and then repentance and then the cool faith of having lost their first love, John writes them this. And in 1 John 1, 5 through 10, I think we've got the verses. We'll throw them up on the screen. John writes this. He says, now this is the message we've heard from him, Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship and, uh, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Howard, I think about you on that because Howard, uh, before his accident a few months ago, would say, you know, he would probably deny the fact that he was a sinner. He would say he would do some bad things. I think this is most people. We do some bad things, but we wouldn't say that we are sinners, that we have sin all over us. Verse 9, one of the best verses in the Bible, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I just want to walk through this really quickly this morning, verse by verse. Uh, can we leave the verses up? Is that possible? And I'll just kind of walk through. Uh, let's start with verse 5, if we can. I'm sorry, I just sprung that on you. In verse 5, uh, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. John is telling them, this is what Jesus told us, and so this is what we're telling you. He's like, I'm not just making up Bible verses, quoting, uh, I'm not just quoting stuff to you. He's saying, we were with him. This is what he told us to tell you. John's essentially saying, this is the spiritual telephone game. Do you remember playing that? Like we do that with Natalie's family sometimes at Christmas and a little thing kind of goes around the room and it ends up as something different than it is at the beginning, right? John says, we're playing the spiritual telephone game and what you're getting is exactly what Jesus gave to us. We are getting it right, he says. John tells them that God is light, not like light. God is light and there is no darkness in him. Is anybody afraid of the dark? Any people in here afraid of the dark? All right, yep, a couple people sort of, like nobody wants to raise their hand real big on that one, right? A couple people are for sure. You know, there's only one time in the, there's only one time in the New Testament, uh, the Gospels and after, where this idea of darkness really comes up. And I'm going to tell you uh, in the Gospels where it is. When Jesus was dying on the cross on Good Friday, um, the Gospels tells us, the Gospels tell us that, G that Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem went dark. And Jesus, as he was carrying the weight of all of, human, of humanity's sin, past, present, and future, as he's carrying the weight of that, and the perfect holy God of the universe is pouring out his wrath on the Son, the only way humanity can receive forgiveness and be spared the wrath of God for our sin is everything of that is going on. Jesus is literally catching every thought, every evil word, every sinful action, every human being of all time ever. He is, he is carrying the sin of all of humanity on him. And the holy God of the universe, I don't know if God sort of turned away. I don't know what happened. But there's something going on where the holy God cannot look at Jesus as he is carrying sin. And it says the city went black. It went black. The city went black in its complete darkness. And if you read the Gospels and you see Jesus talking on the cross, he is literally talking in the dark. 
saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Because of that, John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. For a Christian, one in relationship with God through Christ, John's audience, there would never be darkness with Christ. You may feel like you are in the dark at times with God. I promise you, you are not in the dark. Everything may not be clear. Everything may not be made known. But Jesus is the only one who went completely into the darkness so that we could experience the light of God's presence and his love for those in Christ. Uh, Verse 6, if you will. So now if a person says he has connection or she says she has connection or fellowship or intimacy or breaking bread with God while walking in darkness, again, it's that word darkness, Um, This time, John's not talking about uh, this idea of darkness. This time he's talking about what it means if we, like, if we are walking in moral depravity, if we're walking in spiritual ignorance, if we're walking in coming judgment, if we say we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, not like life doesn't make sense. This is saying if we say we have fellowship with him while we're not walking in relationship with God, we're walking in ignorance or depravity or evil. If we say that, then we are lying. We are living the opposite of what we proclaim Since there's no darkness in God, a person boldly professing to walk in the light while privately living like darkness is an actor or a hypocrite. It's a hypocrite, a liar. Uh, John wrote, if we say we're having constant ongoing fellowship with God while we're walking in constant ongoing darkness, we are constantly lying and constantly not practicing the truth. Those things cannot exist together. They can't exist together. Here's the problem. We're made for constant fellowship with God. Adam and Eve and Garden of Eden stuff. And believers, we are walking with God in fellowship more than we realize. One of the great myths that the enemy has convinced some of you who are Christ followers is that you are not walking with him. He makes you think that it's the rare thing that you walk with him and the regular thing that you are sinning and not believing well. When the truth is, based on this uh, verse, that more often than not, we're actually walking with him and we step off the path into sin very rarely. That's not the norm for us. It really isn't. Satan wants you to think you're a big fat loser and a failure when it comes to following Christ. And that's just not true. God didn't send his spirit into you to be a failure. So when we sin, we break fellowship. That is what happens, and Satan would make you think it's ongoing, that you're constantly stuck and defeated in sin, and because he wants you to quit. He wants you to give up and quit walking with the Lord. Recognize the enemy's tactics. You were made for ongoing fellowship with God, even though you commit one-time sins. We were made for ongoing fellowship with God, even though we commit one-time sins. Sins is not our nature. It's not our identity. It's not our guts anymore in Christ. Relationship, forgiveness, saint is our new nature. You can literally look in the mirror in the morning. I don't know what you see in the, in the mirror when you look in it and say, if you are a Christian, you can say, I am a saint in Christ. We were watching Big last night. Do you guys remember that movie, Big? And do um, and you remember the first night when they take Josh into the city, his buddy takes him in there, and he's going to stay at the St. James Motel, and it's this hellhole of a motel, I think around Times Square, somewhere in New York in the late 80s, right? And, uh, and, and his buddy says, look, Josh, you're going to stay at the St. James Motel. It's religious, right? Like, we hear that word saint, and like, even a kid can recognize there's something religious about that. If you are in Christ You are a saint regardless of how you feel. You are a holy one because Christ is living in you. John says it's impossible for a believer to walk constantly with Christ and constantly in sin and unbelief. Not because you're not saved, but because it's your new nature. Verse 7. So John says we can walk in the light and we find two things happening. One, we have fellowship with each other as a bunch of people who used to be in darkness but now have been rescued by light. Have you ever looked at these people in here and gone, I don't really even know these people, but I find myself liking them, kind of even loving them? That's pretty cool. That is what happens as we walk in the light. We have fellowship with one another. Where, where I grew up, when you said fellowship, that meant there were like 
six eight-foot tables, and everybody would bring a casserole, and somebody would bring a lot of fried chicken. And if you had a lot of fried chicken and casseroles and a lot of desserts, you had fellowship. Now, you could hate the people you were eating this food with, but, like, we called that fellowship in the South. Fellowship is not that. That's part of it. Fellowship is when Christ in you attaches to Christ in you, and though you may have nothing in common, you find yourself loving one another. This is fellowship. Our races may be different. Our geographies may be different. Our passions may be different. Our stories may be different. But we have fellowship as we walk in the light. Do you, uh, and then the other thing that happens, it says, is we are cleansed from sin by Jesus' blood. Do you hear that? You are cleansed from sin by Jesus' blood. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you are cleansed by sin of sin by going to confession. If you didn't go to confession then you weren't cleansed of sin. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you were cleansed of sin by just going to church a lot and doing things. You didn't listen to this person. You didn't date this person. You didn't do that. If you did that, like, you better go to church and get your act together and try really hard. Some of you grew up in that tradition, right? But this says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. We are cleansed by Jesus' blood. It's his thoroughness, not ours, that completely cleanses us and fuels fellowship between Christians. That's the gospel. Jesus, not our prayers, not our contrition, makes forgiveness. Jesus makes forgiveness. Like, I know that a lot of you are reserved. Like, I hope that you're, like, giving an inner amen on that because that is so good. That is so, so good. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are liars lying first to God and then to ourselves and then to others. The one who, te- who pretends to have no sins, a liar, not a saint. A saint can freely say, I have sin, I struggle, but I am a saint in Christ. And then he says, the truth is not in them. Ugh. <laughs> That's a terrifying verse to me. If we pretend like we don't have any sin, We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Why is that terrifying? Because so much of church experience can be like coming here and trying to act like we don't have any issues. Do you ever feel the weight of that? Like you've barely even believed this week and you come here and you feel this pressure. I've got to believe this thing really good. Or you've been a real jerk to your spouse and you've got to sit here and act like you just love that person so much. Man, I'll tell you, for me as a pastor, that's a real struggle sometimes. It really is. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. To pretend to have no sins is to be blind and spiritually dead. We have become tremendous liars and incredibly blind as a culture when it comes to confessing sin. We say stuff as a culture because we're so proud as Americans. We say stuff like, well, I had a misstep. I had a lapse in judgment this week. I had an affair. I had a slip up. Or we preface it with, if I have offended someone, and then we sort of give our apology, but really, we're not really sorry. We just are sorry we offended somebody, right? Or we say, I'm only human. And when we do that as Christians, when culture does it, it's fine. When Christians do it, we're making a liar out of God, and we're making light of what caused Christ to die. This is biblical confession. If you grew up in a tradition where you had to go to confession, and maybe you're even confused about what confession is, let me read you a good confession. I am a sinner, probably the worst sinner. Jesus died because I am a moral monster. I think sinfully, I indulge sinful emotions, I make sinful choices, my sin costs Jesus his life. I could try to hide it, but that would be a total waste of time. That's, that's owning it. And that feels really painful. I can sort of read that to you, but that's really painful for me to declare even from my gut. You see, we think of sin as a culture in quantitative terms. I sin, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I'm a good person. We think about the quantity of sins we commit. We're a bad person as Bin Laden or Hitler or my neighbor who is noticeably more of a moral mess than I am. God doesn't look at our sin quantitatively, how much, he looks at our sin qualitatively, what, what it makes us, who we are. 
So God doesn't sit here today and go, oh, look at Nicole. She's sinned less this week than Nick. God would look at this room and say, every one of you jokers is a complete wreck without me, and I'm going to send my son to die because you're all a mess. It's not what you do and how much. It's who you are apart from Jesus Christ. We are either saints in Christ or sinners separated from Christ. We view morality as a scale where our good is weighed against our bad. God views sin as a tester of authenticity, like in Willy Wonka, when Veruca Salt jumps up onto the egg holder, right? Remember that? And it falls because the scale is not weighing how much Veruca weighs. It's judging her as good or bad, and the scale sees her as a bad egg, and she falls to her doom. And I went and rewatched that scene this week, and my dad's like, where is she going? And Willy Wonka says, she's going where all the bad eggs go. Maybe you can catch her before she hits the incinerator. I'm like, how is this a kid's movie? This is the most terrifying children's movie of all time, right? Like, the Lord doesn't look at our sin like a weight scale. He looks at our sin like judging whether, uh, he judging our condition. It's not quantity, it's quality. Sinning less is not going to solve our dilemma. Only grace, only rescue, only a change in who we are can save us. Which leads to verse 9. One of the sweetest, most powerful verses in the Bible. If you can go to that next one for me, that would be awesome. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Christians sin and confess that act or word or thought pattern or attitude or relationship or habit or area of unbelief to God, each of which costs Jesus his life. If there was only one person ever and they only sinned one time ever, Jesus still would have come and lived sinlessly and died sacrificially for them to atone for sin. When we confess, he is faithful and just, reliable, trustworthy. God is loyal to forgive our sins. Uh, what we're afraid of, I went to Corral Classics for preschool. You're getting like my entire education this morning. We'll get to the University of Georgia maybe at some point. Like when I was at Corral Classics preschool, I remember being up on the seesaw and Jason DeLoach was at the bottom right? That's a vulnerable spot as a four-year-old sitting up on the top of that seesaw. Never will forget, Jason DeLoach jumped off the seesaw and down I came. And uh, my bottom felt it for the next little bit. We are afraid sometimes of the Lord. We treat confession like it's us getting up here at the top and God is going to step off and we're going to plummet. But the scriptures say that if we confess our sins, he is, when we are high and defenseless, God is loyal to forgive and to cleanse. He won't abandon us at our most vulnerable spot. <laughs> What's been the most vulnerable spot in your life morally where you were high and dry, and if it weren't for grace, you were going to plummet to the bottom. The scriptures say God won't drop you or leave you when the spotlight shines on sin in your life. Rather, he cleanses us. He cleanses us. For the past few years as an American society, we are coming to grips with our sins uh, and injustices with regard to race, gender, sexuality, economics, and other areas. Each week as we watch the news, it can feel like there's another injustice that we need to expose and confront and make amends for as a nation or a culture. When John wrote that God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, another word is injustice. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all heart injustice. So when we see um, a George Floyd incident or a Breonna Taylor incident in our society and we say there's injustice and we've got to fix the injustice. The Bible says the same thing that we see outside of us in culture and we know it's broken and has to be addressed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of the moral injustice occurring in our hearts. When John wrote that God will cleanse us from unrighteousness, he was saying that God will cleanse us from the injustice in our hearts. And that's why we need confession. And that's what the gospel does. And finally, verse 10, the other options to pretend like we don't sin, to not let God cleanse us, to act like we have it all together. When the spotlight shines, we pretend as if nothing wrong occurred and we're totally innocent. The one who does that, by the way, John says, is not a Christian. 
Someone can sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and be a fantastic actor, acting like they have no issues and they are morally good and with no need of God. And John says that when they do that, they make God out to be a liar. God has said we all sin. When we pretend and deny like Adam and Eve, we call God a liar. When we hide as if our sin is too much for God to forgive, then we say he lied when he has said he will cast our sin as far as east is from the west. When we masquerade, we call God a liar. And we miss the fellowship we can have as a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by Christ's death. We sin. I sin. You sin. But we have to own it. The only other option is to deny it and call God a liar. So let me just share a couple of implications of this. For the note takers in the house, I'm going to give you a couple of quick notes um, in light of this. First off, sin is just missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. Now, some of us grew up in traditions that ranked sins. I think some of us came from like, there are mortal and venial sins, right? I don't even fully understand that, but I know it's a thing. And there is a difference, right? I grew up in a tradition where we just had a list. There was a, the old poem I remember our grandparents saying, I've showed it with you before, we don't, we don't drink and we don't chew and we don't date the girls who do. Like there are some public sins that you were not allowed to commit in the South. Like, you know, I was raised Baptist and they used to always say, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist? The Methodist will speak to you walking out of a liquor store. Like those were the ways that I grew up like you just didn't talk about certain sins in my upbringing right sin is not like that sin is missing the mark that's what it means it just means missing the mark another Latin phrase for it is the heart curving in on itself when the heart ought to be an arrow aimed at the bullseye of God's holy standard when the when the arrow of our morality bends and it cannot hit the bullseye That is sin. In its worst forms, it's worshiping other gods, murdering my neighbor, abusing children, stealing from people's retirement, or hating or oppressing minorities, immigrants, and the other. But it's also the secret sins of judging people. It's also letting fear win over faith and how I live. It's lusting after a woman or a cheeseburger or anything else for that matter. Sin occurs when I miss the bullseye of God's perfect holy standard. It occurs anytime I take Jesus off the throne of my heart and I put something or someone else on it, including myself. In that light, I sin so much that without Christ, sin isn't what I do, it's who I am. I miss the mark all the time, all the time. The same is true for all of us. And all of sin's consequences The worst uh, is that it separates a human from God, and we can't bridge the gap. We need help and rescue, and Jesus is the rescuer. Second thing I would tell you in light of this passage, conviction occurs when a Christian sins, and God's Holy Spirit, God in us, given as a gift and a sign and a seal that we are born again, checks us and says, that was sin. Has that ever happened to you? Has that happened to anybody this week? Nope, you guys were awesome. I was terrible. Good. Okay. Um, when your heart, when you're actually, I don't think it tends to be my heart. It tends to be my gut. Like from down here, when my gut says, hey, dum-dum, you mistreated that person. Or, hey, you just lost your temper. Or, hey, you are a selfish jerk. You just sinned against that person and God. That is conviction. It's gut feeling, and it's not fun. But it is refining and healing. It is refining and healing. If we listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction, he speaks clearly and firmly, but lovingly. We don't have to do his job for him. If we ignore him, when God convicts us, he begins, that dulls our senses. And God is a gentleman. He will never go where he is not invited. And if he puts his hand on something and we say, not right now, God, not right now. I'm going to do my thing. Just leave me alone. He's a gentleman. He will back away. And And the touch of his conviction will feel like the press is less and less. He will let us have our way. He also speaks to a pre-Christian. Some of you aren't yet followers of Jesus. You're thinking about it. He will expose your sin, and he will push you toward Christ. It'll be like being sucked into, like a moth being sucked toward the light. If you ever sat here and you felt a deep nudge in your gut, much like the fear of asking for a raise or asking a person out on a date, It may be the Holy Spirit of God calling you to surrender, to be saved, to be baptized, to give, to serve, to speak up, to go on a mission trip, to repent of a sin, to end or start a relationship, 
to make a bold move or something else. For the one who's not yet a follower of Christ, he is drawing you in not to, not to um, quantitative good deeds. He is calling into you to a qualitative relationship with him, to being a new person. I don't have to tell you what the Spirit says, because when you hear him, you know. He, some of you, he speaks to over and over, waiting for you to trust and obey. And this is important. The Holy Spirit of God, God will not tell you to do, if you're here, God will never tell us to do this thing if he's told us to do this thing, and we don't do it. I meet people, and I do it too, who we say, God, I don't really want to do this one because this one's uncomfortable. I really want to do this one because this one looks fun. And this one looks like a leap of faith. And this one might make me look good. But this one right here is going to humble me. I don't really want to do this one. God will not call you to do this one until you obey at this point. It's just how it works. I wish it didn't. The next thing I would tell you, God's grace is a spotlight. But not like the one in my eighth grade play that was waiting to see me fall. But rather like the one in my basement that was intended to expose foundational issues and prevent the collapse of a house that looked good but was structurally compromised. That's what conviction is. It's looking under the guts of the house. If we read the verses through gospel lenses, we hopefully hear grace first, mercy, and the light of love. But second, hopefully we hear God's call to holiness that calls us to confess and put sin to death because sin is so damning and so destructive. Next thing I'll tell you, many are afraid of the spotlight. God's shining it on our sin and conviction or shining it on our sin through confession and repentance. Uh, And there's multiple reasons for that. Some of us fear it because we've not been told we're universally fallen. Some of you grew up with parents who expected you to be perfect. And you feel like God expects you to be perfect. And we haven't been told that God actually knows we're not perfect. That we're all fallen. Like, if you feel like a moral mess today, look around. Nobody in here is judging your moral mess because most of us feel like a moral mess. Because the truth is, apart from Christ, we are a moral mess without God. Second reasons we fear of a spotlight. We have an expectation of perfection that God never placed on us. Third, maybe we're afraid of being hypocrites by culture's definition. By culture's definition, a Christian is a hypocrite if they do anything wrong. Oh, that Christian lost their temper in traffic. They're such a hypocrite. No, a hypocrite... Biblically, is when a person pretends to be this thing publicly and there's a gap between who they really are and their character. Privately, there's something else. That's a hypocrite. We can be afraid of being hypocrites by culture's definition if we say, look, I sin. I struggle. I don't have it together. Another reason, we're afraid of criticism. We can be a really thin-skinned generation. We don't handle criticism well. Natalie criticized me the other day. I bowed up. Not physically, and my heart bowed up. You ever do that, right? I, my heart bowed up. And like five minutes later, a spirit convicted me. It was like, you know what? She's right, and you are wrong, and you need to apologize and get it together and quit being such a baby. You're not perfect. You need me, the Lord said. And I apologized to her, and I said, I'm sorry. I was thin-skinned when you called me out where I was wrong. That's why God lets me be her husband, because I'm a mess and she is gracious enough to point it out and she is trustworthy. Another reason we don't confess, we are, refa- we are afraid of rejection. And this one's really core. If God sees me for who I really am, will, my God, will God or my Christian friends find me to be a fraud and will they abandon me? Hear the gospel, shout a resounding no. No. If Christians reject you because they can't handle the weight of your struggle, then they don't understand their own struggle and how much we all are in need of grace. God is for you. God is with you. God is in you. God will never leave you. And and your church, hopefully, will understand that they are messed up too and will be with you as well. Uh, I've heard people say, by the way, that the church is to be a hospital for sinners. And that is on some level true. A church should be a place where hurting people can go. But what do you call a place where sick people stay forever? A nursing home. A lot of churches have stopped being hospitals for sinners and they've become nursing homes where people stay sick and immature forever. We want you to be exactly as you are, but grace loves you where you are, but too much to let you stay that way. So if you're sick and defeated, if I'm sick and defeated today with the same things I'm sick and defeated with in three years, there's a problem. 
We want to grow and get victory in our life. That's what hospitals do. They nurse people back to health. And we want to see that happen in Christ. Who do I confess to? Start with the Lord. Confess your sin to God and receive his forgiveness. For those of you who grew up in a, in a tradition where you had to go confess, let me tell you who biblically the Bible says you should confess to. Uh, confess to the Lord. Confess your sin to God. Receive his forgiveness. Jesus secured it for you at the cross. Then confess your sin to the person you've sinned against. If your sin was against somebody, go and say to them, I've sinned against you. So if Megan sins against Sean, she needs to go and say, God, I'm really sorry. I, I sinned against Sean, uh, you. But also she ought to go and say, Sean, I really, I betrayed you when I did whatever. And, uh, and that's healthy. Confess your sin to the person you've sinned against. If I sin against Natalie or if I sin against Nick or I sin against Noah or Owen, I need to go to them and confess that sin. And, uh, and not as some cultural buzzword. I need to say, babe, I sinned against you when I... Nick, I sinned against you when I... Will you forgive me? You might also confess sin to an accountability partner or a trusted friend who is a Christian. Word to the wise, don't have an accountability partner of the opposite sex. It just creates more potential problems and temptations than it solves. And despite what you've been told, uh, you don't have to confess your sins to a priest or to a preacher. I want to make that really clear today. Jesus is your mediator. He's your payment before the Father. You don't need me or another pastor or priest or preacher to hear your sins. Unless it will help you walk in grace. If it will help you, do it. But a preacher can't forgive your sins. So Nicole, I know, grew up in a confessing tradition. There's no biblical mandate for Nicole to come to me and confess her sin. If that will help Nicole walk in freedom and grace as her pastor, I'll be glad to do that. But she's not required to do that. She's required to confess her sin to the Lord and to someone that she sinned against. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses. But man, hallelujah, the blood of Jesus cleanses. Here's one thing. Everybody in your life, if you write down one thing today, here it is. Everybody in your life doesn't have to know everything, but somebody in your life should know everything. Everybody in your life doesn't have to know everything, but somebody in your life probably should know everything. Otherwise, there's a gap where you could be acting in the spotlight of grace that's being hidden by you from shining on your life. Finally, how do you confess sin? Let me give you an acronym for all the nerds in the room who need things to memorize. Here's an acronym. We'll call it the Art of Confession. A, agree with God about your sin. Admit your sin. God, I sinned when I blank. Or go to a friend. I got to confess. I sinned against God when I blank. Be, be specific. Agree with God about your sin. Admit it. R, recognize the cost. Sit with your sin for a moment and realize it cost Christ his life. Sit with it for just a second and recognize what it cost. And then T, turn at all costs. The biblical word here is repent. And it just means doing a 180. Run from sin, put it to death, fight the good fight, get boundaries and guardrails. Ultimately, let me say the problem isn't a device, a relationship, a habit, a place, a drink, or anything else. The problem is our heart. Our heart is wicked apart from desperate clinging to Christ. And sin inside us latches uh, outside to a temptation that's out the outside of us. Just getting some external boundaries will not change your heart, but it will not hurt. It would not hurt some of you to get rid of your smartphone and get a dumb phone, the old one where to do like a T, you had to hit the number eight like four times. That would not be the worst thing for some people. It would not be the worst thing for some of you to get rid of your streaming services. It would not be the worst thing for you to delete some contacts from your phone. It would not be the worst thing for some of you to avoid some places and some street corners where you find yourself stumbling and falling into defeat if that's how God leads you. But ultimately understand that the bigger issue is your heart. Do whatever it takes to put sin to death. We need to become artists at confession and living in the light of grace. A model prayer confession might be, Lord, I've sinned against you. First and foremost, my sin is against you, and I'm sorry. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin. Right now, I receive your forgiveness, and I turn from what I did. Help me, Lord, in faith to put my sin to death. Thank you for forgiveness, and thank you for restoration. I love you, Lord. Amen. That is... I can share that with you later if you need. That's a good prayer of confession. 
Do I need to confess it again if I turned and I keep feeling guilty? No. Ask forgiveness and move forward. You don't have to ask for forgiveness for the hundredth time for the sin that you committed one time. That's guilt and condemnation. And that is not the geography in which our God finds himself living. And that is not the neighborhood that God has called you to live in either. What if I sin and didn't realize it and haven't asked forgiveness for it and get hit by a bus? Would I go to hell? No, that's a great question. Jesus cleansed Christ followers of sin at the cross. At the cross, he forgave all our sins, past, present, and future. So when we ask for forgiveness, God isn't cleansing us per se. That fully happened at salvation, but he is allowing us peace and restoration to relationship where he didn't move, but we moved. So confession isn't securing forgiveness. It's us taking the posture where God was here and we used to be here. It's us saying, Lord, I'm confessing my sin and I'm moving back toward you, not asking you to move back toward me. God fixed his position at the cross and he has never moved one time since. So in a sense, we're not even asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness has already been settled. We are seeking to confess our sin and to receive our forgiveness in Christ and turn back. Doesn't that give me license to sin? Yeah, I guess so. I'd be lying if I said something otherwise. Doesn't that mean you can just go get hammered and do whatever you want and cheat everybody and punch your neighbor in the face when they make you mad? I guess so. But Paul writes in Romans 6, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of you have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death, just as in Christ we were raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we may walk in newness of life. I know three or four of you are thinking about baptism. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It's just a picture. It's saying this one died to themselves, and now they've been raised to life in Christ. It's just a picture. Can you sin as a new person? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can. I don't understand why you would. It's not helpful. How can we drink the toilet waters of sin or even flirt with sin by dancing right up to a line when we've experienced the clean waters of grace? For the pre-Christian, heed the conviction of the Holy Spirit today and don't bother confessing individual sins to God. You are made for a relationship with God. And relationship begins when we confess our ultimate need for Christ and surrender to him and become part of his family. Not yet, Christian. You are separated from God. And only salvation and turning in faith will bridge the gap. Give your life to Christ. Confess your need for him. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you in your gut, he is convicting you of your need for salvation. You can't earn it. You just receive it. And today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Confession isn't a spotlight. The light of conviction, unlike the light in that cafetorium, is not meant to scare us, embarrass us, belittle us in a worldly sense. Rather, like the light in my basement, it's meant to expose what is unseen and dangerous. Conviction is God's love shining a spotlight on an aspect of our life, our faith, or our character. Confession is my response to that love, an agreement with God and adjusting my life accordingly. When we say no acting required, we don't mean just be yourself and stay that way. Rather, we mean let God's light shine on you and know that you don't have to hide. How liberating it would be for some of you to not have to hide at church anymore. How liberating it would be for some of you to be able to be before the Lord and not have to hide. Conviction and confession are good gifts and proof that God loves us just as we are, but loves us too much to let us stay that way. I'm just about done. Here, I got that much left. (laughs) Revival and awakening are two really great words that we don't talk about a whole lot anymore. Revival happens when, um, when God's people um, turn from sin and confess sin under conviction and God revives their hearts. Frankly, our community and frankly, the church, the capital C church in Boston and and frankly, our church needs reviving. We always need to be more awake. Um, Awakening happens. There's a great awakening 300 years ago, 250 years ago, something like that, right? Out in Western Mass. Literally, people were coming to faith who didn't know Christ at all under conviction of sin, who had not even heard the gospel. 
Revival and awakening will not occur without conviction and confession and repentance under the warm glow of the light of God's love. We need the fire in our bones that comes from tears in our eyes and confession on our lips. Confession and repentance, I will tell you, are hard work. They're humbling work. They're not something we like to do in 2021. Certainly not in America. Certainly not in a city like Boston that is defiant and proud. And they're not something we even like to do in a neighborhood like Charlestown, where you sort of know everybody and the community has a certain image it likes to uphold. Sean, you've been here a long time. You know that this neighborhood has an image it likes to portray, but always doesn't live into. It's tough, right? Is there sin in your life right now that you need to confess to God? Sin in your life against someone in the room that you need to confess to them and then ask forgiveness for? Is there sin against someone in the world outside the doors of this building, um, maybe not even a believer that you need to seek out, confess to, and ask to forgive you? Would you be willing to humble yourself by stepping into the light if you knew the spotlight of confession would be the pathway to your family or to your street or to our community, or to your workplace, your co-workers, even our nation experiencing awakening? What if your confession and repentance is the key that unlocks a great move of God in our neighborhood, or in our city, or even in our world? Would it then would we then be willing to confess our sins as a church and as the people of God in Boston or even in America? Would be we, we'd be willing to sit with it, own it, feel the sting of it, and turn it over to Christ in freedom, forgiveness, and surrender. It may be some ugly crying. How many of you are ugly criers? You know, I'm talking about some people are criers, and some people are ugly criers. My wife is nodding her head big. Uh, I'm an ugly crier, too, sometimes. I, like, yeah, it's happened to me a few weeks ago. I was um, struggling under the weight of something, and I started crying, and then I started ugly crying. And I was like, babe, I'm so sorry. I don't even know why I'm ugly crying right now. And I just lost it. For what God wants to do in our life may require some ugly crying. And it would be worth it. I promise you it would be worth it. Let me pray for us. God, I pray the greatest day in our church. I pray the greatest day in Charlestown. I pray the, the greatest day in uh, each household represented here, each roof that these people live under pray the greatest days are ahead. That they're ahead. We haven't even gotten to them yet, Lord. And I really believe that they won't happen without, with us bypassing the need. Where, it, where there is need, it won't happen with us bypassing conviction and confession. So Lord, if there's sin in our hearts, if there's sin in our words, or our attitudes, or our actions, if there's hidden sin, maybe it's public, maybe it's private, maybe it's hidden, God, can we confess it? As Nick comes and he begins to play, Lord, would you just speak to our hearts about what would be separating us from you? And God, would you humble us as we step into the light of love, the warm light of love that's exposing what is damaged under us? God, would we, Lord, would you, um, would you deal with us? Would you show us the rot and the damage? And can we turn from it, receive grace in Christ's name? Amen.